Blog Talk Radio. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to the second half of Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, lots of cool pictures, as well as Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. I encourage you to follow. I'll be doing a giveaway today, so you got to keep checking to see what the giveaway question will be. And uh, you could win a copy of Black Pop Wasteland by F.A. Cosby. Um, this morning, I had another show about breastfeeding. You might want to check that out for men and women, just learning more about breastfeeding and, you know, helping the woman in your life or, or, and, and helping your child in, the, in your life, um, you know, prepare to be uh, healthy. Let's say that way. Um, so Sean Cosby, also the author of My Darkest Prayer and Brotherhood of the Blades, his writing is influenced by his experience as a bouncer, a construction worker, retail manager, and uh, six hours as a mascot for a major fast food chain uh, inside the wor- world's hottest costume. Um, I'm going to be talking to him about Blacktop Wasteland, which is uh, put out by Flat Iron Books. And uh, good morning, Sean. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Thank you for having me. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're a busy guy. This is like a wonderful novel, and I've seen you've done so many interviews. So thank you for coming on the show this morning. Uh, no problem. So let's start with just a basic question. Why are you a writer? Why didn't you continue to be a mascot <laughs> or a roadie? <laughs> or I heard you worked in a um, funeral home. Like, come on, you had a lot of options here, dude. <laughs> I think um, I think all of those things are uh uh, instrumental into why I became a writer. Um, <laughs> I, I think, uh, in all honesty, I've, I've always liked and enjoyed telling stories. And so even as a kid, I enjoyed, uh, uh, as my mom would say, um, coming up with fanciful answers to questions or lies. Mm-hmm. And um, and so uh, even as a child, I, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to uh, create characters and worlds. And so um as I grew and, of course, you know, uh, life is a very circuitous route sometimes, um, and I did other jobs, but I always came back to writing because I felt like it was the one thing that I was uh, moderately good at. Well, I asked you if you could read a, a little bit of the book this morning. Um, are, are you still able to read a little this morning? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's um, have you do that so they can get a feel for the story. Okay, and uh, basically this scene is at the beginning of the book, the main character, Beauregard, um, Bug Montage to his friends, is uh, competing in an unsanctioned street race somewhere in the rural part of Southern Virginia. And um, this mm. is a scene. <laughs> this is a scene as the race begins. You ready? The guy standing between the cars yelled. 
Warren gave a thumbs up. Beauregard nodded. One, two, three, the guy screamed. The secret ain't about the motor. That's part of it, yeah, but that ain't the main thing. The real thing, the thing that most people don't want to talk about, is how you drive. If you drive like you're scared, you're going to lose. If you drive like you don't want to have to rebuild the whole engine, you're going to lose. You got to drive like don't nothing matter except getting to that line. You got to drive like you stole it. Beauregard heard his daddy's voice every time he drove the duster. Sometimes he heard him when he was driving for cruise. In those moments, it offered bitter pills or pearls of wisdom, nonsensical chatter that reminded him not to end up like his daddy, a ghost without a grave. That's a little section from the book. Thank you so much for reading that. Um, let me tell you, I don't, I'm not like a car car person, but I want to go out and get a car after reading this and like figure out like the best parts to have and all these things. And it made me appreciate, you know, when you see on the street, you know, the guys with the rims and they got their music mm-hmm. blasting and, you know, the cars are bouncing or, or different types of things. Just made me appreciate that world of, you know, having a car and, you know, treating it, um, you know, as this extension of yourself and, and how, mm-hmm. you know, people's animals, their pets, Mm-hmm. They kind of look right. like them, you know, right. like people's cars, you know, kind of represent who they are, I felt, uh, through this book. Now, um, I heard that the, the car was based on your dad's car. Your dad had yeah, a car my similar? Da- yeah, my dad had a, uh, a 71 Plymouth Duster that we used to call Big Red, and uh, it was it was pretty much uh, word for word the same car as in the, in the book. It had an eight ball as a shifter knob, it had a leather interior and a big red stripe down the side and uh he uh he he used to ride us around as kids in it and there's a scene in the book that's from my childhood where he would put five dollars on the dashboard and when he took off if you could reach the five dollars you could have it of course we never could we were little kids and the g-forces in that car would press you would bury you into the seat and so you know even after him and my mom separated that car always kept a sort of mythic um, resonance in my life, and so um, mm. I didn't know I was going to include it in the book when I started writing the book. It's one of those things that kind of just popped in my head, and I, I, I decided to run with it. Now, um, let me just ask you, this is a side question, how are you making out with this COVID thing? This is really crazy. <laughs> how How is that affecting your writing, and will you have a book in the future dealing with this COVID thing somehow? Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's strange. It, when it first started to happen, I think like I was like everyone, you know, you, you hear about it, and you hope for the best. I didn't realize, nobody I think realized in, in the immediate um, at the beginning of this how you know incredibly difficult, how vastly um, it would change society. And so at first I was you know cautious, and then we hunkered down for a while. And I um I know that I produced some short stories in the first months of the uh, pandemic, like March and April and May for um, some live readings. Uh, that we did through Zoom and, and Crowdcast. And they were those stories were really dark, I think, because mm. I was kind of in a dark place. And uh, as we soldiered on uh, uh, the little side stories that I've been writing or short stories I'm writing for different events, and lighten up a little bit. I mean, my my, <laughs> my bread and butter is, is, is dark crime fiction, so these stories were really dark. Um, mm. But as a writer, uh, for me, I think in the future, I see myself, I don't think I'll set a book during COVID, I'm either going to set a book in the years before COVID or mm-hmm. I'll set a book in a near future where it has 
been not eradicated is the right word, but where we're at a better place with it. I don't think anybody needs to read about a book set during the pandemic. We're all living that right now, and it's devastating. Yeah. And so I think as a writer, I'll either, you know, uh, set a book in the halcyon days before it started or in the bright and shiny future after we maybe could somehow get a handle on it. I like that. The bright and shiny future, something to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, now one of the things I read, and, and this is probably connected to your writing, uh, you were in drama club when you were younger doing Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. Do you still read Shakespeare? Um, oh, what yeah. What are some of your I favorite writers at this point in your life? Oh, my gosh. Well, like I said, when I was in high school, I was um, I was a part of the uh, the drama club, and it was funny because I went to a small school. And so our drama club, like, only had, like, five people. So sometimes had to, you had to learn all the rules because, if you know, if, if, if Johnny Smith couldn't make it to work or make it to school that morning and you had a performance, you might have to step in and play that role. So that was interesting. And I've always been uh, drawn to public speaking. Uh, when I was a young man and we went to church when I was a little kid, uh, we were always tasked to do a lot of public speaking at church. And so uh, I've always been comfortable speaking in front of crowds. Anybody that's ever been with me in the uh, in the bar at a, at, a, at, a, at a book convention knows I don't mind talking. So mm. um, those things helped me along. Uh, as far as my favorite writers, I'm, I think starting out when I was a little kid, you know, of course we all read, you know, like, well, I don't say all of us, but a lot of us read books like The Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, and, and, and books there, you know, Super Fudge and things like that. But I think my first, real appreciation of the power of writing and what an author can do who is at the top of the game was when I started reading Stephen King. Um, mm. And uh, and I was a young kid. I really had no <laughs> yeah, I had no business reading it. My aunt used to buy Stephen King paperbacks, and when she was done with them, she would let me have them. And, um, and so I would pour over them. And so, you know, it just was the first time I realized that a, a great writer can really – pull you into a world that they create. And so later on, of course, I, I branched out and I read everything. I read all types of books. So everything from Walter Mosley to A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley to older books from the early American literature movement like McTee by Frank Norris or, you know, American Tragedy by Theodore Grise or anything like that. So I, I have a wide variety of stuff I read. But my first foray into really understanding the power of the written word was um, reading um, Stephen King's books. Yeah, and I heard that you, like, took a silver knife or fork or something <laughs> under your pillow. So you oh, better yeah. not read those anymore, young man, because... Uh, I know. When I was a little kid, I had such a vivid imagination, and so reading, like, Salem's Lot, it was more like, oh, this is a manual. I'm going to be ready because the vampires are coming. So, you know, I'm going to be prepared. <laughs> and so uh, my, and my more poor mom was like, why are the butter knives all underneath your pillow and everything? <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about acting though and performing, one of your characters—he's not the main character, but well, he's like one of the Ronnie. I feel like he's an actor. Like he could have been a great <laughs> actor, like and tried to swindle, like you know, or tried to sell an Eskimo ice cubes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Eskimo doesn't need ice cubes, but he would sell them to him. Yeah. Buy, the Eskimo would buy them, and and he'd oh, be yeah. like, "Why the hell did that body start him ice cubes?" As a friend of mine who read the book said that Ronnie could sell fudge stickers to a woman wearing a white glove. I mean, he's just ah. he's he's very slick and he's charming in spite of himself. I mean, he's he's a secondary antagonist at, at one point in the book, but I, as a writer, as the author, as a creator, 
have a little soft spot for Ronnie. He gets the best uh, punchlines, and uh, yeah. and so he's sort of a he's sort of a counterpoint. Whereas Beauregard is really a character that I wrote about and, and I used to kind of use as a catharsis for certain things, not just my own personal feelings, but feelings I think that are generalized in society that a lot of people can identify with. Ronnie's sort of that idiot. Ronnie's sort of that, uh, he's the, I wouldn't say the comic relief, but he's the lighter edge of things. I mean, things still get dark, but uh, like I said, he's he's quite the charming uh, rapscallion, as we use that word, uh, yeah. in his own right. Well, one of the issues that I saw in the book is how to be a man. What does it mean mm-hmm. to be a man and take care of your family? So Beauregard, mm-hmm. you know, he has Tia and he has his son, but Ronnie is trying to take care of his brother. I mean, you know, why, mm-hmm. his brother's a grown man from what I'm mm-hmm. reading. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, why doesn't he have his own life and place and things? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They seem to be stuck together, and I feel like, you know, Ronnie mm-hmm. is, is, is taken uh, over like the parent, you know, for for, mm-hmm. for, um, for Reggie. What do you think it means to be a man? What what qualities do you have to have, uh, and and what resources do you need as to be a man? I think you know I talk about this a lot that there is definitely a a, a, a thing you know there's such a thing as toxic masculinity and how it can infect uh, people in a, in a, in a, and how it affects people in, in society. But I do believe there's something I, I call in the phrase tragic masculinity, and being a man is sometimes. Tra- trying to find your way through that tragedy. And, you know, uh, I think a lot of men have a hard time communicating, not just their emotions, but just communicating how they feel, uh, how the world is being pressed upon them and how they deal with it. And so being a man, I think, is one of the things that's paramount is not just taking care of your family and your friends, but taking care of yourself, being healthy physically, mentally, and emotionally. And I think a lot of men, don't know how to do that, and we're not actually given the tools. You know, you grow up and you're you're told to be tough and don't cry and don't you know don't don't be weak and don't show emotion and don't be sensitive. And a lot of times that instruction makes us injure ourselves. We we don't we're not given the tools. It's like somebody telling you to build a house and they don't give you a hammer and nails, and you're just mm. trying to figure out how to put these boards together. And so um, I think being a man to me means you know you take care of yourself, you take care of the people you love and you care about, you treat people with respect. You, if you see a wrong, you try to right it. At the same time, I think I've learned over the course of, of my life is that also being a man is also not trying to solve everybody's problems. Sometimes, you know, like I, I used to have like, uh, I, I used to like when I was young and and wild and dating and stuff, and, and a <laughs> girlfriend would talk to me about a problem. I wouldn't actually listen to the problem. I try to fix it. Okay, well, what do we need to do? Sometimes mm. people just need to vent. Sometimes right. people just need to talk. They don't want you to fix anything. They just want you to listen. And I think that also is a part of being a man. I think being able to disseminate the situations where you need to maybe, you know, go in and confront somebody for somebody and on situations where you just need to sit and actually listen. And so I think that's the hardest thing about being a man sometimes is navigating that um, that pathway. You also deal with this issue of people trying to get resources, people trying to get things. And some people are trying to do it the right way. But then shit happens. If I, you know, I got to say mm-hmm. it like that. Shit happens. And then um, people are constantly trying to do it the wrong way, like Ronnie. Uh, but it's still mm-hmm. for a good reason. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in our society right now, there's this huge gap between the poor middle class and the rich. It's this huge. Mm-hmm. And then your books are taking place in, you know, the South, and you can see these class differences. You talk about that. When you were growing up, did you feel 
um, the issues of poverty and, and around you? Were you aware of that? Because I read that you were going to the bathroom in an outhouse, if you don't mind me bringing that up. Yeah. Um, no, no, I was, uh, yeah. So did yeah. you know that? Were you aware, conscious? Um, and how did that impact you? Oh, yeah, you're definitely aware. I mean, I grew up in, in, in poverty, you know, and, you know, my parents separated at an early age, and my mom tried hard, you know, she tried hard to give us the best life. But when you live, I think it's especially difficult in small towns in all America. You know, it's it's hard being poor, it's hard being poor and white, and it's real hard being poor and black in, in a small town. And so, you know, my mom tried, she might, it was hard for her to get on her feet, you know, and, you know, we had a series of things happen, like our house burned down, my parents separated. It's like the beginning of a bad country song. And so um, <laughs> I was definitely aware of the, the, the disparity between my life and some of my schoolmates. You know, it's like, you know, I, I remember um, wearing my brother's hand-me-down sneakers for years until I went to work myself during the summer and bought my own shoes. And mm. I think there is a certain sense as an adult, it's almost like a PTSD when you're born and live in that kind of poverty. You know, you never you never let go of it. You know, it's like even today I'm very it's hard for me to like spend money on myself. It's hard for me to like not keep a, a bucket of change. I, I keep, you know, a bucket that I drop quarters in. Not for yeah. an affectation or something that you see at Crate Burrow, but it's a part of me that knows, yeah, there are times where I had to go and dump yeah. we grew up like I said, we didn't have indoor appointment until I was sixteen and so, you know, there's something about you know, there's not <laughs> there's there's few places in the world as mean and, and, and ragged as an outhouse in the middle of summer. And I don't think you ever forget that. And I think it does something to you. Good and there's it's good things that they do to you and there's bad things that they do to you. I think that it makes you appreciate any type of success, even in a small modicum of success you may have. But it also I think it makes you incredibly wary. You're always waiting for the other shoe to drop when you when you go through something like that. And it's something that I've struggled with trying to get, get past that. Um but I think poverty is the one thing that if you've lived through it, you understand it. It's relatable. Anybody that reads that book who has ever had to, like, you know, you know, get the, the government cheese box or the bag of fruit rings or mm-hmm. has had, you know, wear shoes that had no name brand, that an instant, instant touchstone for them. And for people that didn't live that way, I hope that it, you know, is able, it's something that elucidates what a lot of people are going through and what a lot of people are struggling with. Now, you also have a lot of guns in this. You know, and that's a big, big topic right now. People are trying to actually just mm-hmm. deal with the NRA um, because uh, mm-hmm. people that were running it were actually uh, hoodwinking and bamboozling mm-hmm. the members out of their money. I mean, that's a fact. Mm-hmm. That's a, that was found. Mm-hmm. Um, what, do you, what are your opinions? Should people be able to have guns? Um, only certain people? Should the police have guns? What's your feeling about guns? I think that I, I'm, I believe Let's put it this way. I don't think the NRA – the NRA doesn't advertise in black neighborhoods for a reason. You know, we, we are – as black Americans, we're fully aware of the fact that the protection of the Second Amendment – NRA is not fighting for us to have guns. In fact, mm. you know, it was the – you know, it was California in the 60s that changed their gun laws because of the Black Panthers saying, well, if you're going to carry guns in our neighborhood, we're going to carry guns to protect ourselves. Yeah, I, I believe people have the right to have guns. I also believe that that black Americans, white Americans, whatever you call it, you have a right to have a gun. I also believe in common sense gun control too. I don't have a problem. I, I'm a gun owner, and I don't have a problem if the government says, "Hey, we want to register your serial number, and you know, we want to make sure that you, you know you're the one that owns the gun, and you shouldn't have to worry about." I shouldn't be offended if somebody wants to do a two week background check. 
You know, I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be in a hurry to get a gun. If you're in a hurry to get a gun, you have some issues that you need to talk about. And so I don't. I'm not for abolishing the Second Amendment, but I'm also not for just willy nilly everybody. There's no. I used to hunt growing up. I'm from the South. I'm from a rural area. My father and my grandfather. We hunted not just for sport, but for actually to have food to eat. You don't need an AR-15 to hunt a deer. You don't. If you need that many shots to kill a deer, you you've chosen the wrong activity to spend your Saturday afternoon. And so, I think you know we just have this obsession in America with guns and gun rights. And you know, let's be real: people that are joining the NRA are not joining it because they're sportsmen. They're they're joining the NRA because they're terrified that. Somebody black or brown is going to do something to them when really black and brown people just want to be left alone. So many people that join the NRA are afraid that black, they're lucky that black people don't want revenge. We just want justice. Mm. Talking about justice, that brings us to like George Floyd. Do you, mm-hmm. remember, do you remember, where were you when you learned about George Floyd and what was the reaction? Yeah. I was actually writing. I was sitting up. I saw it on, it was on CNN, like, late at night. It was on CNN, like, around 1 or 2 o'clock. And I had I heard something about it, but I hadn't seen the video. And when I saw the video, you know, I had a friend that asked me about writing about race issues. And he, he said, do you think your book is timely? And I said, unfortunately, it's always going to be timely because this is always happening. It's a cyclical. You know, mm-hmm. it's George Floyd Day. It's Rodney King 10 years ago. It's, you know, or 15 or 20 years ago. It's Emmett Till 60 years ago. It, it You know, if you're black in America, this situation with George Floyd is not a shock. It's shocking that it happened. And right. I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. You know, and people are like, why are you, you know, and people will try to talk about George Floyd, and they do it every victim of police violence or violence in general. And they'll try to tear down his character and so on and so forth. And I saw something on Facebook that was so poignant. It was like, you know, the police shouldn't be killing guilty people either. There's a court system to determine whether somebody's guilty or innocent. So even if Mr. Floyd, which he wasn't, was trying to pass a phony bill, even if he had a past history of, 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 of criminality, he still that's not a that's not qualify him to have a death sentence carried out on the street. And it's so frustrating sometimes when you talk to people, you know, and they'll say, Oh, all lives matter and all that kind of stuff. No, they don't. Because all lives can't matter until black lives matter. And and the thing about black lives matter is not black lives matter more only it's also you know and as you have to be people have to be reminded of that because for almost 400 years they didn't matter we were cattle Mm -hmm. then we weren't cattle we were segregated and then even when segregation uh stopped we were redlined again you know and Mm -hmm. so and so the idea that oh you know you guys want special treatment nobody wants special treatment we just want equality we won't be treated just like everybody else and watching you know i've been pulled over while driving while black. Me and my friend have been pulled out of our car and thrown to the ground because there's no way two young black boys could be driving like, a, you know, back in the day, a 2005 Michigan launch. And mm. so people that haven't experienced that, they don't understand that. And I think, you know, James Baldwin said it best. To be a black person in America is to nearly be in a rage all the time. You know, that is um, talking about Beauregard, your main character. And he has this other person inside of him and that he's battling, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think Mm -hmm. everybody has this other person. And then for black Americans, um, you have this other person, which is that rageful black person. Because for me, I wake up in the morning and I'm not waking up in the morning like, oh, okay, yep, I'm black. 
doesn't no, <laughs> I, I don't even think about that. And I've talked right. to black friends, it's like you don't think about that. You get up, you wash, you eat and everything. It's when something you're confronted with something by something external usually, uh, mm-hmm. that that then you become oh um, now yeah, yep, I am black, but mm-hmm. so what? You know what I mean? Um, but we also internalize um, negativity uh, inside of ourselves mm-hmm. as a community, as an individual. But Beauregard has, pro- has a problem of making a choice. Um, have, mm-hmm. have you had that issue in your life? You had to decide, like, the good, the bad. You got the little angel on your on the, on the good angel on your right <laughs> shoulder, the bad angel on your left. And it was like, go do oh, it, yeah. go do it. Like, no, don't do it, don't do it. How did you handle oh, yeah. that? It's hard. You know, you grow up, it's weird. It's hard being, his back. It's hard being black in America because of systemic racism. But then if you add on to that, like I said, my parents separated and when, I, at, at, when I was young, and it was not a pleasant separation. It wasn't amicable. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you, you have that, and then you have this rage inside of you, outside of being black, just as a person, you know, my, you know, to speak as I spoke when I was a kid. My daddy's gone, and I don't know why he's not here. And him and my mom can't get along. And then, you know, sometimes parents are putting you in the middle of a situation. Mm, you know, that's the worst. That's the worst. Yeah, yeah, that's the worst. You know, your mom is like, call your daddy, dial his number and tell him you need this. And your dad's like, well, tell your mom I said this. Like, y'all handle that. I'm, I'm a <laughs> You know, I just yeah. want to play G.I. Joe. And so you grow up with that emotional violence in your life, and then you go out into the world and you realize, oh, it doesn't matter how smart I am. It doesn't matter that I read Shakespeare or that I can quote Chaucer or that I like to play chess oh, I'm going to run into somebody, all they're going to see is a black person, and they've already decided who I am. And so that rage, in addition to, you know, the emotional rage of just being a person, builds inside of you. And I used to have a terrible temper growing up. I was, you know, I was smart-mouthy, and I had a lot of attitude, and you know, and, and it was it took years for me to kind of get to a better place and get to a place where I could say, okay, I internalizing this anger. I need to talk to someone about mm-hmm. my personal issues. And I also need to talk to someone about issues of, of race and how it feels. You know, I grew up in Virginia, and, you know, this Virginia, Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy. And, you know, like you said, there's a subtext. Like you say, I don't get up in the morning and turn to the first black person I say, see and say, race, 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 how are you? Race, 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 mm-hmm. how are you? You know, we mm-hmm. don't do that. But at the same time, I can drive right down to uh, my town square, and there's a Confederate statue right in front of the courthouse. And it's that subconscious, subtextual knowledge as a black person that you're not going to get a fair shake. I mean, I think of, I always see that statue. Wait, now talking about the statue, did you Mm -hmm. see a guy recently? There's a video going around of an African American guy with a Confederate (laughs) baseball cap on, and he's talking about this is the history. You know, I Mm -hmm. I grew up in an all white area, this, that, and the other, and this is part of the history of, you know, of their um, ancestors, da, 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 da. There's nothing wrong with that, and we should, you know, not be tearing this down. (laughs) What do you think about that video of that guy? It's like a real live Dave Chappelle sketch come to life. Um, I think, okay. you know, it's funny. I've, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've experienced people, I've run into people like that, and I think a lot of times people like that are lost inside themselves, and they seek an identity, and sometimes the identity they're grasping onto is something controversial, like, you know, uh, being a Confederate apologist. I, I, I've met people like that, and I think it, it goes to, again, my mantra as a writer and my philosophy as a writer is that everybody hurts. And when I see that, you know, that brother on, on TV and his Confederate hat on and, he, you know, he's talking in an exaggerated southern accent that he probably doesn't really use, I mm. see somebody that's hurting. 
you know, I see somebody that's probably hurting on the inside that probably has some kind of emotional trauma in his life and he doesn't know how to deal with it. And so these Confederate, you know, white folks that he grew up around, he feels like they have his best interest. He feels like they're welcoming him. I guarantee you, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know how much money I put on it, but I guarantee you if you were able to get that brother alone and talk to him, you would find out that he had a very tortured upbringing or tortured life or something happened to him because yeah. that is a confession of pain, that kind of mentality, I think. You know, we, you know, we talk about that. You, you talk about Kanye West and his antics over the last year and a half. I was years. just about to say, you know, I was just about yeah. to say that. You know, people don't realize that. You know, I'm a licensed social social worker. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I, I've seen and read different things, and and I have uh, coworkers and people that deal with people on a daily basis that are dealing with you know issues of pain and you know mental mm-hmm. having well mental health. You know, trying to get mm-hmm. get well. And when I see Kanye West, he's not well. And no. I don't think he's joking or playing a game. I, I, I think he does not have good mental health right now, and he needs yeah. assistance, and he's refusing assistance. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. I don't oh, think yeah. he's playing a game. Um, and mm-hmm. I think maybe once he gets back on whatever medication he was on or he's finally mm-hmm. able to accept help, then, um, you know, he'll look back and be like, wow. And, you know, I want to talk to people. I feel like they're blaming, you know, Kim, but he is yeah. not hurting himself, and he's not hurting Mm-mm. anybody else. So no, he like not my, commit him. That no, she's not realize that. She's, yeah, she's trying her best to help him. Like I said, when I see that brother acting like that, you know, it's funny. I grew up around people. They, didn't, they weren't Kanye West. They didn't have his creativity. You know, the man's a musical genius. But I grew up around people that were hurting like that. I grew up, like, around people that acted out like that. You know, I think, you know, growing up, again, in a rural area in the South, on a small town, um, you see it, it's a microcosm of, of, of society as a whole. And I knew people that acted out like that, that were hurting, that did things that seemed erratic. Um, and when I was younger and I think less mature, I would react to someone else's actions instead of trying to listen. And so it would, I'd be, I would see someone acting like that. So what, and I'd be like, what is wrong with that fool or whatever? And now as I'm older, and I just turned 47 more, a few weeks ago, I've come to a realization that try to take a beat, try to take a step. And I don't know, maybe it has to do with being a writer and try to look at someone like that and say, man, that brother needs help. That sister needs help. Somebody needs to step in and help that person. Same with the young man, you know, wearing the Confederate hat, the, the African-American man. I, when I, I, I get, I see on, online people are, you know, are mocking him. As, you know, that's the way society works now. And then, you know, maybe he needs to be mocked a little bit. But at the same time, I look at that like, yeah, somebody needs help that brother. You need an intervention yeah. or something. But, um, you know, I think I think as a writer, you do gain certain, a certain amount of insight when you're trying to come in, into the mind of your characters, even your villains. You know, I always try to write my villains from the perspective of, you know, they don't think they're the villain. You know, in their own story, they're the hero. And so when you come from that perspective, it gives well, you – Well, that's a, how Beauregard is. I mean, he's really oh, – yeah. he's like, I'm going to fix it. He keeps saying, I'm going to fix mm-hmm. it. You know, and mm-hmm. she's like, uh, yeah, right now, I don't want to give away so, but I'm just going to say, right now, this time, <laughs> his wife was extremely upset, and she was like, you ain't fixing, then you need to get that bleak reap away from me right now, okay? Yeah. Back yeah. the fuck up, okay? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me talk I, about, I, go ahead, sorry. <clears throat> oh, no, I was just going to say, you're right. I have a friend who uh, uh, read the book in advance of me submitting it for publication, and she, uh, She's a writer in her own right, Kelly Garrett, great mystery writer. And she always jokes me. She's like, you know, if Beauregard had listened to his wife, that book would only be seven pages long. And I'm like, you're right. 
You're right. Yep. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Exactly. So um, I hear you like uh, different kinds of food, and we might go to the Waffle House. So if you were taking me to the Waffle House, okay, what should I order? Because you know I'm just up a Yankee up here in the north, northern, northerner. Uh, I don't know nothing about real food. So what should I okay. order? Okay, first of all, if you go to Waffle House, you have to be prepared. You have to get your mind right that you're going to see some weird stuff. Because Waffle oh, House okay. is a nexus of strange and surreal activity. I could tell you, <laughs> I've given the stories, I could tell you that I've seen it in person that have happened at a Waffle House. That being said, um, I think if I take you to Waffle House, first thing we're going to do is, is we're going to get some hash browns. We're going to get some smothered and covered hash browns, which means it's got cheese and onions in them. And then we're going to probably get... Uh, the big, uh, the Waffle House waffle. That's a good, uh, okay, we used to go to Waffle that. House as kids. We used to go to Waffle House as, as young people when we would come back from the bar or the club to soak up the alcohol. So you're going to get the waffle to help soak up the alcohol. <laughs> um, okay. You're going <laughs> to get, you can you get your egg either scrambled or sunny side up. I prefer sunny side up. But, I like uh, scrambled. Way, I'm a scramble person. Scramble. Okay. There you go. Right. And you're going to get a, and you're going to get a big glass of southern sweet tea, not northern sweet tea. I've been to New York a few times for business and, and travel up north, and that sweet tea, you all got to be, is not sweet tea. It's like what? <laughs> so, Really? Yeah. You know, all the time yeah, I can think of sweet tea, that's not it? Oh, damn. You need real damn. sweet tea. Okay, the real you, sweet tea. And then, and then you the real sweet tea. Now, if you really want to get a taste of actual southern, like deep south soul food cooking, though, you need to come to a, a, a down south cookout. We're not a barbecue, a cookout. Um, like okay. Memorial Day or July Fourth weekend, where yeah. you've got you know you got your uncle in the short set at the grill. He's wearing you know that uh, matches like and his ugly matches yeah, match dress shirt, shirt, dress shirt. <laughs> right exactly Coordinate. with his knee high socks. Yeah. the guy had the mushroom mushroom thing yeah. on the inside of his vest. What, what, what movie was that? I can't remember, <laughs> I can't but remember. You, you know what I'm but talking you about. To, you need to come to that cookout, and you need to okay. eat, you need to eat grill. You need to eat uh, barbecue ribs. And then we mm. need to go to the we need to go to the side dish table where the side dishes are. And so we got yes. side dishes that side dishes. Mm-hmm. mashed potatoes, potato salad, mm. rolls, cornbread, uh what? somebody makes a sweet potato pie. So that definitely yeah, that's the experience of the southern southern culinary experience that you need to have. Wow. <laughs> uh, my mouth is already watering. I need to get some paper towel. And you know what? The vegan people are hating us right now. The, the vegans and the people with the celiac illness and everything, they are hating, hating, haters. <laughs> Don't be haters, okay? Don't be haters. Anyway, thank you so much, Sean Cosby, for coming yes, on today. Man. It was a, it was a, such a pleasure. Everybody, I'm going to be giving away a copy of Sean's book. So, you, again, you want to follow me on Twitter, Joy Keys. You want to check me out on Facebook, uh, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. And you want to check me out on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. And, Sean, you're on social media as well. What's your uh, handle on Twitter? Yeah, check me out on Twitter. My handle is BlackLion73. You can also find me at my author's page on Facebook at S.A. Cosby Author. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. You have a great weekend, okay? All right, you too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so much, everybody. Again, follow on social media so you can win the copy of Sean's book, um, Black Top Wasteland. All right, talk to you next week. To some, a baby's babbling doesn't mean much, but it does, especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Learn more at autismspeaks.org. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.